It's funny because people are always looking to try and find a job that pays well. And my advice to people is look for a job that provides the experiences that you want to know. And so, because you can end up leveraging experience and making a lot, a much more fulfilling and rich life. And you'll end up being really profitable too, because if you're, if you're passionate about it. So like I, you know, I kind of talked about this in, in one of my articles. I was like, look, if you want to get into an industry, find somebody that's, you know, in that industry and don't walk up and say, like, mentor me because nobody wants to hear that. Like, Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we are extremely excited to bring you Nate Carter. He is an author of multiple books. Um, Become Loaded for Life, Financial Independence, Retiring Early, and Maximum Happiness, as well as the follow-up book, the same title, Become Loaded for Life, and 10 Stages Workbook, which is far more um, (laughs) hands-on, and it is more instructional and how-to in nature. Nate is a former U.S. diplomat. He has been all over the world, and he makes over 100K a year in passive income in real estate as well as being a senior advisor for Group 9 Security Risk Consulting and a finance writer for LoadedForLife.com. Nate, you are a serial entrepreneur, man. We are so pumped to have you on. We'd love to kick it off with a story, and I know you got a banger, man. Can you tell us about your craziest um, work experience that you've been through thus far? Sure. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Uh, great to be on the show. Uh, you know, everybody is a, you know, start a new job. You have different hazards or risks or things that you're going to have to contend with. And that makes sense. And so my first job, I'd lived overseas before, but my first job with the U.S. Embassy was in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, and so I, the first, you know, several months there were fine. It was, you know, Lebanon's a dangerous place uh, on a lot of different levels. Um, but it's also a fantastic place. You know, the Lebanese are great people. They're very entrepreneurial. Uh, it's beautiful. There's beaches, um, mountains to go skiing. And so while I was there, I was one day I was working and going from one building to another building. And the way our embassy is set up, it's about five miles away from downtown, but it's like a horseshoe. So you kind of look straight across a harbor and you can see downtown. And while I'm walking from one building to the other, a massive explosion occurs. And it was the assassination of the former prime minister, Rafi Kariri. And this was a 4,000 pound bomb. And I could feel this blast five miles away. And it was a huge mushroom cloud. Uh, I mean, just devastating. And, you know, it came out of nowhere. It was, it was Valentine's Day in 2005. Um, and what happened after that was, you know, we normal process within an embassy, you know, we're looking to make sure you know, all, everybody is safe that's connected to the embassy. We start reaching out to the American Citizen Network um, to make sure they're safe because you're in those initial moments, you don't know what just happened, but you know it was huge. Um, and it was at the same time, there was a lot of Israeli jets that were flying over uh, and they were breaking the sound barrier. And I just remember I was standing next to this building, like kind of watching this unfold. And one of our security guys comes out, you know, with his machine gun and he says, hey, was that an Israeli jet? You know, breaking the sound barrier just above us. And I said, no, man, this is something much bigger. And I just pointed across and he looked and he could see, uh, you know, this huge cloud of smoke that had, had arisen. So what was interesting about that was just the change in the tempo of our jobs after that, because there was a series of other assassinations afterwards. There was car bombings kind of happening frequently. And so what was a relatively calm environment 
just turned into a very tumultuous environment. Um, and it led to what was referred to the C as the Cedar Revolution, where there's the Lebanese were protesting. There's hundreds of thousands of people all over downtown um, protesting, which eventually led to the Syrian military withdrawing from Lebanon. But an amazing experience to be a diplomat uh, at that time. I mean, tragic, clearly, for the Hariri family and other victims that were there at the time, but um, just something you know, I'd never forget. Did you, after that event, feel like you were more needed and then therefore more trusted? Or was it skeptical, like with bombs going off? How, how did you, being in a foreign country at that point, um, how, how were you re received? You know, the one thing I say with my experience is we work in the embassies, you know, with our military partners and our you know, development partners and, and everybody kind of people pull together when things go wrong. People pull together. And we also find, too, that we have we had a really great relationship with Lebanese uh, people at that time. And so in many ways, it was you know, we were you know, kind of reaching in much deeper and even helping out as much as we, we could. You know, I went when they did a condolence call with the um, Hariri family, I went with the ambassador and some other senior officials um, from Washington. And you're, you know, you're sitting in this room and you're talking to the family and it's, you know, we read about these things in a newspaper or, or in a news article, but it's so different to be sitting in a room and seeing the, the sadness and the anguish on people's faces. And you're like, look, this is real, this is a real person. And then other members of his, his uh, security team and advisors who were also killed in this blast, um, it just, it made it just come alive, um, just seeing how a person individually is affected by something so tragic. No kidding. And then you said this was quickly followed up by the, the Cedar Revolution, I believe you said. Hmm. So what yeah, was it like right. to be in a country in the midst of a revolution? That had to be a nuts experience. It was wild, you know, and it, it was interesting, too, because, you know, I'd spent a fair amount of time in the Middle East uh, over the years. I'd spent some time in Syria, you know, before Lebanon. And it was interesting to see this. The, you know, I kind of understood the political dynamics between Syria and Lebanon at the time. Um, but, you know, the, the people were just out in droves. And, you know, Lebanon, for people who don't know, Lebanon has this history of a horrific civil war um, between different factions, you know, basically from the mid-70s to about 1991. Um, and people really started to kind of pull together and you'd see these crowds of, you know, different religious faiths or different sects that were all together um, supporting this idea of having the Syrians pull out of their government, you know, pull out of their country and, and withdraw their troops. So it was a very almost like a heady time, like an exciting time. I still have some flags that I've kept um, that, you know, people had that were, you know, um, people that we knew that were out there and trying to support this process. And it was like this almost like a, you know, memorabilia of this time. Um, so, yeah, and it was, it was an incredible experience um, serving in Lebanon. And, you know, I just really enjoyed um, seeing Lebanon and kind of connecting with people that were there. Um, very valuable. Absolutely. So curious, like going through that process, like what do you think was like the number one takeaway that, or, or even let's say two or three takeaways that you were able to take back with you? Because yeah. obviously you're in a different country. So culturally it's going to be very different. You were yeah. five miles or within five miles from this explosion yeah. of an assassin yeah. assassination that led to a revolution. Yeah. Like I, you had to yeah. pull some experiences from that that you've applied to Absolutely. your life, right? Can we get into that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest things is you kind of build these connections and you build trust when things are good. And so you 
build these contacts within the host government or within the private sector uh, or within NGO communities. And you do that, like as a diplomat, that was something that I had to do. You know, as soon as you hit the ground, you're out trying to build contacts and make a network and make a connection. Um, and you're trying to understand what their position is. Uh, and it's, you know, if you're if you're just trying to convey your position, you're never going to be successful. You have to understand where they're coming from, what their interests are, and then try and blend their interests to your own and see where you can find some common ground. So I think that was the one big takeaway was um, spending the time to build relationships and trust early on. So when a crisis hits, you're ready. Like these people already rely on you. They already know you. Um, they know that you have good intentions. Second is leadership. We had a fantastic ambassador uh, that was in the country at the time. And his ability, his respect that everybody that worked for him had made it um, very easy for everybody just to get right in line. Um, whenever he said something, we, we agreed with what he was doing. He knew us. He knew his team. Um, and I think that is one of the most important things. Like you can't, if you don't have your team's back leading up to a crisis, there's no way people are going to follow you, especially when it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's gunshots going off, there's bombs going off, and you have to know that you rely on this person and you know that they understand the risk and they're putting you, They in times that they have to put you in harm's way, they've done it through very conscious analysis and conscious thinking. They're not just ignoring the risks that are out there. They are paying attention. So I think those were the two biggest takeaways um, that I saw from the experience. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. So Nate, let's go back to the beginning kind of. Um, so like, let's sure. flesh it out. So like, um, young Nate, what did that look like? How did you become a U.S. <laughs> diplomat? And, and how did yeah. you get involved in the real estate? Let's just go through the whole thing. Sure. So it's, it's kind of like a two-stage process. So I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. I had a new newspaper route. I was really entrepreneurial, you know, shovel, shoveling driveways, you know, doing garage sales, things like anything I could figure out that would like turn a buck. I would, I just love the idea of coming up with a way to make money. Uh, and when I was, you know, young and doing this, it was around the same time as like the 81, 82 recession uh, had kicked in. It was two recessions that were in close uh, succession. And I just remember thinking like everyone was like, study hard, get a good job, get a, you know, climb this corporate ladder and make money. And I would look around at the people that were in my neighborhood and these recessions hit and people lost, you know, cars or they lost their houses, you know, lost jobs. And there was this, this huge amount of stress on these families. And as a young guy, you know, just going out there and you get to know these families, you know, in your newspaper route, there's like 70 people that were in my route. And you start to realize, like, look, these people played by that rule. They did what they were supposed to do. Um, they're good people. They have good work ethic. But obviously, it doesn't always work. And I, and I thought about this idea of, like, look, you're, you're relying on a paycheck. And in good times, fine, there's a lot of jobs out there. You can find a job. But in recessions and in downturns, these paychecks become fragile. And it's they're not as available. Uh, and so if that's all you're relying on, you're in trouble, especially if you're in an industry that's shrinking, um, you're not paying attention to larger economic trends. Uh, so that was, it kind of planted the seed of, in my own mind of like, okay, this study hard, get a good job. That may be part of the answer, but it is absolutely not the solution. Um, and there's gotta be more to it. And there was always like, you know, there was like one or two kind of entrepreneurial families 
uh, that were in our kind of larger neighborhood. And you're always like, these guys don't seem stressed about money no matter what happens. And so you're like, okay, there's something going on here. And so I try and you know, learn from them uh, as well. And my so going the government like, route was kind of an antidote well, that, to... Yeah. And well, this is the thing that was kind of funny because... So my dad had started a couple of small businesses, just mom and pop stuff. And so I learned, you know, one was like, a, you know, we did a photo video, uh, like, you know, running up videos and then do, developing film and doing like tan salons and stuff like that. And man, retail, you're standing there all the time. You've got to be present if you're going to make any money. And then as soon as Blockbuster came out, we're both like looking at each other like, okay, this is a done deal. We're out of business. There's no way we could compete. And that was a really good lesson. It was like, look, if you are in an industry and the game has changed, get out of the get out. Like, don't be like, well, I'm just going to hedge and see how this goes for a year. Be a first mover, get out quick. And so we did that. And then we switched into um, a sign business, which, you know, we didn't have an experience in sign business, but we're like, hey, let's let's try something different. That was significantly better. You know, the returns were much higher. It's a service industry. You're getting callbacks for people to come back and, you know, fix stuff or change lighting or they want to upgrade. And I also got to work with my friends as well, which we really like. So it was like, you know, I was making money. They were making money. And so that kind of taught me a lot about the whole world of entrepreneurship. And so then I kind of fast forward and I was in college and uh, studied political science and then got interested in just globally. And I was like, all right, I want to kind of experience overseas. And so I, I learned about the Peace Corps and then I decided to go into the Peace Corps. And so, anyway, I, you know, kind of before that too, I got a master's degree. When I was doing my undergrad, I'd spoken at a conference in the university, which was great, Illinois State University. Um, it was just a great university. And they um, said, hey, look, you know, you spoke at this conference. Are you interested in getting a master's degree? Uh, we'll, we'll pay for it. And then we'll give you $900 a month to help teach a class. And at the time, I was thinking I was going to go to law school. But then I looked at how much the loans were going to be and the cost was going to be. And I thought, what happens if I don't like being a lawyer? So I was a little bit kind of lost. So I knew I wanted to live overseas. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to incur all this debt. Um, and so I was like, I'm not really sure what I was going to do. And I worked with this professor who was great. And he's, you know, we started talking more about the Peace Corps. And so I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get this cool overseas experience. Um, and so that kind of takes us to like the second stage. So the first was the newspaper route years of learning about, hey, something doesn't seem to be right here. And the study hard, I'll get a good job approach. And then when I got back from Peace Corps, I was, I was living in Morocco for two years, um, 27 months. And then afterwards, I traveled around the Middle East for a while. But I got back and it just was this, like, I've been in grad school for two years and over, you know, about two and a half years then of traveling and being Peace Corps. I just felt very disconnected from everything at home. And I had 1500 bucks to my name. And so that was when the financial light turned on, where I was like, okay, I have friends that have like came right out of college and got jobs and they're like driving land, you know, Range Rovers and they're, you know, spending money and doing all this stuff. And I got 1500 bucks and I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Um, and so that's when I said, I need to get serious. I need to figure out, like, I need to take the lesson I learned as a kid and I need to turn it into something tangible. Um, so I started reading everything I could about personal finance um, trying, and, and this is, again, this is before the fire movement. This is before bigger pockets. This is before all like, there was not much out there. You know, it was like rich dad, poor dad. And then like some books by Warren Buffett, like there was just, wasn't a lot out there. And so, you know, as I kind of was doing this research, I came across the company Medtronic and they're uh, like a medical device company. 
and they have a hundred year, they do a hundred year strategic plan. And I thought, okay, this is my light bulb moment. If a company has a hundred year plan, I think I need a 30 year plan. I'm going to come up with my life 30 year plan. And so I sat down and I just kind of started writing notes and crossing stuff off and writing something new. And I came away with like kind of five bullets, which was, all right, I'm, I'm 27 years old and I have 1500 bucks and I want to retire at 57. And I want to have a nest egg that will pay for and passive income being generated that will pay for my lifestyle. So that was kind of number one was this portfolio. And number two was I didn't want to retire into austerity. I didn't want to be like, yeah, I'm going to retire, but man, I'm going to have to belt tighten and not be able to do any of the things I love to do. And then like kind of number three was I didn't want to work 90 hour weeks to get there. And so I didn't like, I didn't want to just be like fall in that trap of just working and working and working and working. And then one day I took my head up and I'm like, why did I do all this? And like, do I even like what I'm doing? So I want to be really kind of conscious. Well, let me jump in what I was doing. Because I think this yeah. is such an important yeah. point, right? So we are the Freedom yeah. Chasers podcast. We obviously yeah. encourage people to seek financial freedom, but we are heavier on the word freedom than financial freedom because mm -hmm. financial freedom could be a different number for anybody. It could be $5,000 a month. It could be 4000 It could be right. twenty, right? So you had established that you wanted to be free and you didn't want to work these 90 hour weeks, which is amazing because I never even considered that. I was like, I'm happy to work 90 hours a week. I want to retire early. So where did yeah. that epiphany come from? Because as you mentioned, there was no bigger pockets then. there was no fire movement. Then. So how did you come yeah. up with this? You know, a lot of it was just looking at people who were doing it and it was, their health was so bad. Like people were so stressed out and people were just, you know, they didn't spend time with their kids. They didn't go to baseball games. They didn't do those things. And I thought, all right, what happens if I start, I start on this planet. I'm like, all right, I'll work 90 hour weeks and I'll try and go to Goldman Sachs and I'll try and crush this, you know, and you get hit by a bus and you're 12. <laughs> like that, that's it. Like you, you put all, all the work in and you never got the balance back. And so I'm a big believer in balance. And so I thought, look, I want to work hard. I will absolutely work hard and I'll spend my free time doing stuff that generates money or coming up with ideas. So it's like, I'm not going to play video games. I'm not going to get trapped in, you know, watching TV shows for hours. I'm going to read books. I'm going to listen to podcasts, stuff like that, as those started to come out. And I'm just going to figure out ways to educate myself on um, creating wealth. But it was always paramount to me to this idea of like, don't lose sight of what's really important. And that is your time. And so money is great, but you're always looking at appreciating your time and the time you spend with other people uh, in experiences. And so when I was looking at this, I really wanted to spend more time overseas. And that's why to kind of answer Matt's question and, and probably yours as well, Tim, is this idea of I went into the government to be a diplomat because I knew that that was going to be a great avenue to be going overseas. And I spent almost 20 years overseas. Um, and it was just, you know, the work was interesting. A lot of the you know stuff I, I worked with, I was an economic officer, so I worked with a lot of private sector businesses, but it was like a new job every two or three years. Um, but living overseas, I didn't have to pay for my housing, so I could use that money to invest in real estate. Um, so there's just a lot of ways to kind of have my cake and eat it too, is the best way to describe it. Like learn about other countries, travel and visit places while also still saving money um, to be able to do the things that I wanted to do towards this retirement. And so I, I said, look, I had a 30 year plan, but the reality is I, I hit my goal in 12. And so that was one of the big lessons of this was 
hey, it does not take 30 years to achieve the goal. It only took 12. And then what's interesting is I, I thought, all right, I hit 12. I'm working overseas. I'm having a great time. Why don't I just see if I can hit that same number again one more time? <laughs> and it took about seven and a half, eight years to hit it again. And then I hit it one more time. Um, there you go. A few years after that. And then I was like, at 50, I was like, all right, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to go do something different. That's amazing. So you have a 30-year plan. You accomplish it in 12. Yeah. You double tap it in 19. Uh, yeah. And when did you hit the triple tap there? Basically, as I was retiring. Okay. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So you tripled your 30-year plan. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... With, while making mistakes along the way. I mean, I definitely made some bad investments. Of course. I mean, well, that's part of the journey. Yeah. Making mistakes is, right. you know, that's that's the easiest way to learn, really. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, your brain associates it differently if you if you failed massively than if you're, you're conceptualized yeah. something. It's like, okay, this is something I did. What did I do wrong? How can I prevent this in the future? Yeah. Well, what, I, what I'd like to hop in there and ask him is... You know, one of the questions I love is if you had to do it again, how fast would it take? So it took you 12 years. Yeah, so now that you know the mistakes, what's the speed if you did it again? Well, it's interesting because it's that, it's a great question. And no one's ever asked me that. Like, well, how would you go back and do this again? Some of it is always timing, right? So we're going into the global financial crisis, you know, so around 2000, you know, I'm buying real estate. It, we're going in 2003, 2004. Stuff looks kind of expensive to me. It doesn't seem to make sense. Like, these prices keep going up, but the rents aren't following in the same way. And so as we get closer to 27, I'm like, you know what, to 2007, I'm like, I don't think this makes sense anymore. So I started selling some properties because, and people are like, you're crazy, man. This is the ultimate real estate bull market, ride it till it's at. And I sold, I'm sitting on cash and people are like, that was a dumb move, man. And I just like, but I can't sleep at night. And that's always my barometer. Like if you cannot, mm. if you're thinking about something at night, then it adds stress back in. It's like, okay, then you're doing it wrong. Like that's why the book was talking about like financial independence, financial freedom, but happiness too. And so I sold and then the market, as we all know, just crashed. And the upside was I was sitting there with cash. So I was going back in on these deals and buying stuff that, you know, was at 40 cents, 50 cents on the dollar. So what I would do differently, it was hard because that timing helped a great deal because I was able to kind of accumulate in the years when stuff was um, less expensive. And I think for me, you know, and it's funny because I had a friend of mine who was like, dude, back up the truck and buy everything, you know? And it's like, I was like, right, but isn't that the same mindset that all the people that just lost everything had? And so I was almost too cautious. So I think that, that to answer your question, Matt, was when it was such a great deal, I couldn't believe it was such a great deal because everybody had just gone through all those foreclosures. And so I was too cautious. Uh, when things were going great. And again, I have no regrets about it, but yeah, I should have doubled and bought twice as many things as I bought because the, the numbers penciled, like all of it worked. But, you know, we were going through the worst financial crisis since the depression. I was a little bit gun shy. And so I think that that's kind of uh, what I wish I would have done is bought more. I also would have gotten into multifamily. I did mostly single family. And the more I learned about multifamily, I was like, okay, this would have been a wiser move. Um, cause you have more doors, what, you know, under one roof, you have the opportunity to, and multifamily went through the roof, you know, a lot of really good investment opportunities. Um, so yeah, you know, are you, are you selling all your stuff now? You know, it's funny. If people ask me, they're like, Hey, what, what's your move right now? And markets are high. And I said, look, if I, so a number of my properties in Boise, Idaho, and I'm very bullish on Boise for the long run. Um, and I said, look, if I was gonna sell, 
you always got to say, what's the next move with my capital? You know, if I'm going to sell out on it and I'm going to you know, pay some of the capital gains or if I do a 1031, where's that money going to go? And right now, I don't see a market that I'm as excited about as, as Boise. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to ride. Boise's declining. It's slow. It got hammered in the global financial crisis. I mean, it was one of the worst markets. But the way it's growing and the way the city, the way the feel of the city, I have no concerns about that it's not going to come right back. Um, and so that's it. You know, my strategy has always been to find, you know, pretty good properties, you know, generally like three bedroom, two bath. And I, I try to go just below market so that I keep a, um, tenants that want to stay year after year. And then just if something goes wrong in the property, you fix it. You know, you treat them well. You, you make them, you know, think like this, this is your home. I'm going to take care of it. And so that's it. You know, try to avoid those vacancies. Don't, you know, have these issues where you don't, you know, deferred maintenance because you won't fix things. Uh, and then just try and really encourage people to stay. You know, we went through COVID and man, a lot of people got wiped out in COVID because their tenants stopped paying. Um, I didn't miss a single rent check all through COVID. So going back to the doing it again, you yeah. would be more bullish on yeah. once it dipped. Do you once find it, you'll probably do yeah. that? If it dips, you'll you'll hit hard again? I think so. And it's And it was just, I was too kind of, I think I was still learning again. It's all self-taught. And so if I had a really a dynamite mentor or something that was there kind of pointing all this stuff out for me, I probably would have done a lot more. Um, and that's one of the things why I, I kind of wrote the books, you know, eventually was I was like, look, if I ever get hit by a bus, like I want to impart all this knowledge to my kids so that they can understand the path to follow this. Um, basically like having that mentor that I didn't have um, in kind of real estate and investing. Um, but yeah, I would have gone more bullish when things went down. Um, and I would have diversified into multifamily and I probably would have tried to embrace more like meetup, real estate meetups and things like that to build out that network. That was a little bit harder overseas. Um, you know, it was just because it's not the same if you're not in the same room with people um, and having a chance to kind of connect and move around the room and, and network. It's a little bit harder uh, when you're like, hey, I'm this remote guy. I just want to talk to everybody. <laughs> um and there wasn't as many people, and I found, you know, the diplomatic community is a lot of really um, sharp people, but there was very few kind of really hardcore entrepreneurs uh, in it. Yeah. How, you wrote a book about happiness within the mix of being yeah. successful. And that's yeah. kind of the age old struggle. Like, do you want to be rich and miserable or do you want to be poor and happy? Yeah. How do you be rich and happy? To me, is it's all about how you look at, to me, is there's kind of two components. The first is you got to find your motivations. You know, and everyone always says like, find your why or, you know, what's the reason that you're going to do this? But you have to identify what is going to get you up in the morning. What is it going to get you to, you know, pull out that post-it and write down the eight things that you need to do this week and circle the most important one and then knock it out the next day. And I find a lot of people who don't do this is they jumped ahead to the, oh, this is how much money I want to have, but they didn't start with the why. And so I kind of ask people, like, go through, like, what's, you know, what's the most important thing to you? Um, and I'm just, I just wrote an article, which I'm going to put out, which is like, look, if you had 15 years left to live, what would you do with those 15 years? And then if you had 15 months to live, what would you do? And then if you had 15 days left, what would you do? If you can't, you know, if you can articulate what is most important to you under those three questions, you're going to probably find your why. Um, in there. And so I think once you do that and you have the motivation, then you got to translate that into the, what is the asset class I'm going to focus on? What is the thing that's going to get me there? 
Because look, you can do it by buying car washes. You can do it by being buying a couple of franchises. You can do it by you know knocking out of the park with one huge um, multifamily deal. You can do it with single family homes. There's a lot of different ways to get to where you want to go, but you want to do a type of asset class that you enjoy. I mean, I know some people just do stocks. They love investing in stocks. They just do index funds and they hustle to generate an income and they put that money in. I like a little bit of my diversification personally, but it's it's that idea of what is going to get you excited to meet, go to a meetup and talk about it. You know, is it stocks? Is it real estate? Is it owning a small business? That's kind of the approach. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's so important to do something that you're naturally good at. So let's say somebody yeah. young, 18, just got out of high school, graduated, doesn't know what they mm -hmm. like. So what would your advice yeah. be to them in order to find what their strengths are? It's funny because people are always looking to try and find a job that pays well. And my advice to people is look for a job that provides the experiences that you want to know. And so, because you can end up leveraging experience and making a lot a much more fulfilling and rich life and you'll end up being really profitable too because if you're if you're passionate about it so like i you know i kind of talked about this in, in one of my articles it was like look if you want to get into an industry find somebody that's you know in that industry and don't walk up and say like mentor me because nobody wants to hear that like do an end you know figure out what skills you have that have value and then introduce yourself to that person and be like, look, this is what I can offer you. These are the things that I could do. And what I'd like to do is kind of offer these services to you for free. And then if you find that they're valuable, maybe you'll spend some time and kind of teach me a little bit of this business. And then essentially, as you start to you know, prove value, you know, it might be a part-time position in there for you, or you, you continue just being you know, in this mentorship relationship, but you're like, hey, look, I helped you on two or three things. What's the next thing that's kind of a challenge that you need some help on that maybe I could dig into, I could learn about it, I could bird dog this thing, and then I could come back and maybe solve a question that you have. And that's, to me, is how you go about this, is you just create value. And then people want you around. You're not a liability anymore, you're an asset. You know, people want you in the room. Um, and so that's one of the things that I encourage people to do. And then, and then also too, away from like what the job description is and the money, what do you also want to have? Like, do you want to be able to work remotely? Do you want to travel? Like figure out those bigger things that are, you know, kind of like a benefit or, you know, uh, an additional um, component of a job and see if that's something that appeals to you um, and, and go after it. Because um, I think that sometimes people just come in and they're like, oh, I want a job that pays X amount. And that's it. Like that's beginning and end. You know, you're going to be right back there with those people that I talked about on the newspaper route in the recession. Like, you can't just think that way. You got to be a little bit more. Um, do a diagnostic. This is what you're going to do for the next 40 years. Do a diagnostic. Figure out what makes sense, and then start to do course corrections. Um, you know, one of the other things I always tell people too, and, and it's out there, and people have talked about this, but living below your means is so crucial. It's, I think about, you know, I used to take my my lunch to work. I used to, you know, drink coffee at work instead of going out for coffee. And it's like, yeah, it's five bucks here, 10 bucks there. But my wife and I, we use that savings to buy our first investment property. And so people are like, oh, you know, it doesn't add up, you know, saving, not going to Starbucks, stuff like that. I'm like, I don't get that much joy out of eating out. So I'm going to allocate this to where I do like it, which is 
an investment property. And man, that thing, it was a great investment. And it also was the whole proof of concept. This was early on in the 30 year plan. And it was like, I bought a place that I lived in and I got a roommate. So all of a sudden I had that rent income coming in. I'm like, oh, this works pretty good. I'll buy our first investment property. And once that happened, light bulb was on. I was like, okay, this 30 year plan races. is doable. And it's gonna happen. Yeah, it's you're off to the races. And it's funny because I just remember talking to other people. I'm like, this is what I just did, man. So you should do this too. This is amazing. People are like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not interested. I'm like, okay, yeah, all right. I well, feel like the newly converted. It's, it's crazy because you know the biggest transition is zero to one. It's like from there, like you said, right. it's off to the races. Yeah, and you just keep moving forward. And it's, you know, I always tell people too. It's people hate talking about taxes, but learning about taxes was key to my success. You know, I did what was called Vita, which was essentially I, I definitely want to. I would definitely want to get to taxes. Okay, but I I cannot get my mind off these concepts of fifteens, the fifteen years, the fifteen yeah. months. Like my mind is going like, what happens if it was fifteen days? What happens yeah. if it's fifteen yeah. hours? So what happens I, I fifteen love, minutes? Fifteen I love seconds. That you brought this up because I was thinking the same thing. I was like, man, do I put Nate on the spot here? And I'm like, what would you do if you had fifteen yeah. days left to live? We like, we, we totally do, Tim. Because I yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 15 seconds. It's like, okay, I'm just screaming. Kids, get here. We got 15 yeah, seconds. I'm going to squeeze on you guys. And, and that's, if, that's but it. Like, you know, I wrote that's this, 15 yeah, hours. You have 15 hours. What do you do? Yeah, you're, always, you're just going to be with the people you love the most. And that's it, man. You're going to be look, looking for an amazing sunrise. You're going to be looking for an amazing sunset. You want to be in nature, and you want to be around the people you love. And that, totally. that's it. Nothing else matters. And I'm like, okay, if nothing else matters, then why are you chasing a $6,000 watch and a you know hundred thousand dollar car you cannot afford. Like, figure that out right now and focus on that. And it's it's you know, it's you know that you know that that idea of those those brackets. You know, I was writing this article yesterday and I was about to put it out today, but I'm like, I'll, you know, I still have to hit send. And it's like this idea when I retired, people said to me, "What's the best thing about being retired?" And I'm said, "I wake up in the morning." And I have total attention to focusing on my boys. I have two teenage boys. I make them breakfast. We sit down. We talk. And I'm like, that is the greatest gift I've had of retirement. You know? I, and when they come home from, from school, I'm there. You know? We get, we get a chat before they have to move to homework or go see a friend or, you know, go to, you know, wrestling practice or whatever. Like, just this opportunity to be there in these years before they move out of the house. Like, if I was working 90 hours a week, man, that was... I'd have zero this time. Um, and so to me, that's been one of the greatest um, benefits, but that's not the benefit people often list on the front end. You know, it's only when you only got 15 you know, hours left, you start to think about the value of those moments. Um, you know, and nobody so ever says- What do you think says, comes in for most people? Is it 15 days, 15 weeks? Yeah, I think, 15 it's months? This, I, I think it's when you start to get down to 15 months. When I was writing the article, I was like, man, 15 months is like, you know, 15 days, you're in panic mode, right? Because you're like, I really have to focus on this and I have to do everything I can. At 15 months, like, you're like, wow, okay, I have enough time to to take a trip. Like that trip of the future or like, oh, I've always wanted to go to South America. No, you're, you're booking that trip today because you know you don't have the time anymore. And so what I say to people is book that trip today then. Like act like you have 15 months, man. Live your life you know, not in a morbid fashion, but in that, hey, I want to do this. And I always feel like it's when you start to say yes to opportunity and you start to move towards 
the goals and your dreams and you're not like, well, one day, one day I'll do this. Like it, it just starts layering, you know, Hey, I want to, I've always wanted to do stand up comedy. All right, go out, get out on an open mic night and just do two minutes. It doesn't matter if you bombed, like go back, rework your material, go back another week. You know, I wanted to go to Europe, go to Europe. You know, I want to do this, you know, cool hike or something. I want to do the Appalachian trail. All right. Take a month off from your job and get out there and hike for a month. It's not, you're not doing all of it, but you at least are going to know so much more about that experience and realize, Hey, it's possible. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm digging the 15 month number because I feel like that's a great number. Um, like you could accomplish a lot in 15 months. If you really set right. that as a goal and a timeline, like 15 yeah. months, you could get to retirement from, from zero to in 15 months. If you, if you execute it well. So I think that's like, it is yeah. a happy medium, right? Cause 15 weeks, I mean, that's, that's going to put some pressure on you. That's going to put some stress. Yeah. Um, 15 months, yeah. still going to put some pressure on you. You're going to put some stress, but it's, it's an achievable timeline. Really? Yeah, you also, you cancel out noise. And that's one of the biggest things I've talked to like younger kids who are, you know, high school age or thinking about this or college age. And I always tell them like, just get rid of the noise in your life. Like if you're going down the rabbit hole, of you know videos you know or you're on social media like that's all noise man unless you unless you're doing something on social media that's advancing your business um like other than that it's just noise and so if you can if you can trim that out people are like well i don't have the hours in the in the day to do that and i'm like you do you just haven't found them mm -hmm. you know and so when you start prioritizing differently and my thing is it's like i just put out an article um last week which was like about you know kind of health and fitness and it's like look you have to exercise you have to sleep right and you have to eat right. The people in the gym who look exactly the same a year ago are either work, you know, they're doing one, but they're not doing the other two. And it's like, you have to have all of them together. And personal finance is kind of the same. Like you have to be saving, you have to be creating new income streams, but at the same time, you got to manage your spending and your time and what you're doing and just allocating the time in a way that's um, responsible. It's discipline, you know, it's basically, di it's discipline um, and realizing what the long-term plan is and what, like what that real goal is. To me, it's time. I wanted to have time because it's irreplaceable. Can't get any more, man. And you, and you don't know how much you got, you know? And so to me, it was like, this is the big reward. And so people were like, why are you doing this? I'm like, time, baby. I want time <laughs> you know, like, as much as I can. And it's funny because, um, you know, when I retired, people were like, what are you going to do next? I was like, I have no idea. But literally when I was retiring, I'd, I'd done some work for the New Zealand government. I was embedded in the New Zealand government for a year on their Middle East team uh, and on their South Pacific team, kind of six months to six months. So when I retired from the State Department, I was still in New Zealand. The New Zealand government, my old boss just says, hey man, you wanna come work for us? <laughs> I wasn't thinking about a job. I was literally like going out the door of job, my job. And he's like, hey, you wanna come work for us? I was like, sure, let's have coffee tomorrow, next day and let's hash this out. And so it's like, okay. And people are like, just were panicking. Like, oh, what are you going to do? You're retiring. You're 50. This doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. wh what's your next step? I'm like, I have no idea what my next step is. Um, these doors will open as soon as you re retire. And because then you're out there, then you're hungry. And so I was, you know, stayed in New Zealand for a while longer. I loved, I worked with an awesome team. I loved stuff related to the Middle East. And so I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm having a great time. But then I was ready to come home. I've been away from family and friends. So as I was transitioning back, a buddy of mine 
reached out who I'd done some work with um, before in Jamaica. And he's like, hey, I'm starting a consulting company doing security, um, you know, basically looking at premises liability and doing expert witnesses. He's like, you want to come in as a partner in this business? And I said, absolutely. Let's do that. <laughs> um, so I always tell people, like, look, look for those opportunities um, out there. But you got to take that leap and you have to have some faith in yourself that this will, you know, you'll find these opportunities yeah. or they'll find you. Yeah, you got to take that leap and you got to raise your hand, right? Like, yeah, I am. And put yourself out there. Um, yeah, just put yourself out there. All right. So this just keeps coming in in the back of my mind. So when we did the pre-show, it was like you had briefly yeah. mentioned um, this kind of off the cuff and I just can't, I can't stop thinking about it. You're like, oh. Like you had a security clearance, right? You were like, oh, it's like, I, you see the stuff on the news and it's like, that, that yeah. didn't happen. I was there. So like, let's <laughs> yeah. can you provide some context to that statement yeah. because I just, I mean, I know news is bullshit, right? But I mean, let's just kind of well, get into that. It's funny too, because I found that there's like certain, like, I like The Economist. I was like, there's times that I would read stuff. I was like, ooh, that's good. Like, I know the inside story of that, of what happened. I'm like, this is some solid journalism. <laughs> like they really got it. And what's funny too is I really liked Business Week too, and I found like we were working on intellectual property rights and issues related to intellectual property rights um, protecting U.S. businesses uh, in East Africa, and there was an article on that um, that was in Business Week. I was like, man, these guys did a great job um, looking into it. And it's yeah, you know, it's funny because there's times when I've been in the room, you know, I've been in the rooms with presidents and you know, prime ministers, you know, leaders of the countries and. Con, you know, led around congressional de delegations and, you know, secretary of state. And it is really cool to be in those situations where you're like, okay, this is the real deal. And it's people like, I, I don't go into conspiracy theories because mm -hmm. I'm like, I've just seen too much. Like I've like, I've been into too many rooms where I'm like, yeah, that conspiracy theory could never play out. I'm sorry. Too many people know about yeah. this, like, or too, you that, know, I was gonna say, that's like the biggest thing for that. me. It's like, they, they're expecting yeah. thousands of people to keep a secret. It's like, that's not possible. It's hard to keep 10 people it's not quiet. Like, <laughs> yeah. And you have that thing, you know, I don't know, you know, if you guys remember the whole, like, you know, the, with WikiLeaks and all the cables mm -hmm. that, um, diplomats wrote, uh, you know, stuff was, you know, stuff I wrote was on the front page of newspapers for multiple days in a row. Um, but it goes back to that point when you were talking about Lebanon, this idea of you build trust and relationship. You know, one of the things that kind of came out of that uh, experience was I had contacts that said to me, I know you're telling me the truth. Like that stuff is out now. And the things, the conversations that you and I talked about, you know, were accurate. And the things you told me is the same thing that you told other people. Um, like back in Washington. And so in some ways, I mean, it was, it was devastating. Don't ever, I'm not in any way saying that there's a silver lining on WikiLeaks. It was horrible uh, and all that stuff coming out um, and destroyed lives. But the one thing about that was if you kind of act with integrity in, this, in, in your work, then when, it, when the curtains get blown open, that integrity is there. And so the people who hear, you know, look at it will, will realize like, okay, you were a straight shooter with us. And um, so I think that that was one of the things, but yeah, no, it was, it was a great experience. It was a lot of stuff I could never talk about. Um, of course. That's part I of the job. Um, <laughs> I would yeah. have to ask those but questions, was, but I mean, I figured I'd yeah. get them back. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was cool to see, you know, for a guy who studied political science and was interested in international affairs, it was so cool to actually be there and do these things. 
um, firsthand. You know, some of it you read about it in books or you'd read about it or you, you know, go to a guest lecture or something like that. And just having that frame of reference, you know, I love, I love the strategy. I love analysis. And so being able to look at a situation and being like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and here's a reason why and being able to articulate why it's just, I enjoy it. Absolutely, man. This is so cool. So, I mean, you just casually mentioned, you're like, oh, I've been in the rooms with presidents and prime ministers. And you threw like a bucket list out there of like people that other people would love to be hanging around. I would just love to know, like, what's it like to be in the same room of somebody of that stature? Um, Is there a presence? Do you feel like, oh, my God, there's a president in the room? Or is it something that you kind of get used to? And eh, whatever. I think you really do get used yeah. to it. You realize that these are these people are facing, you know, the weight is on their shoulders, you know, and that they're facing the same challenges as any other human being. You know, sometimes the stakes are higher for them, you know, depending on the situation. Um, I mean, it's just, it's human. It's humbling and humanizing. You know, it's the idea that you're sitting there talking to somebody, you know, whether it's Lebanon when this crisis is happening or we're in Jamaica when there's a lot of um, heady things that were, you know, occurring at the time and it was dangerous. Um, but you realize but then these people are trying to find solutions that will stabilize the situation and protect their citizens. Um, and if we can come in in some way help in that process, I mean, you look at the, the support the U.S. is doing in Ukraine right now. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented um, to see how much things have stepped up and the, you know, the, the strength of the Ukrainian people and their resilience. Um, I don't know, man. It's, I liked working for the U.S. government. I, I'm a patriot, and I really liked the idea that at the end of the end of the day, like the people I was serving was a taxpayer, um, and I felt like I wanted to make sure they were getting a good deal. And so, uh, you know, and I think that there was a lot of people that were like that that I worked with. You know, I, and I I've joked with this, you know, with some of the folks I've worked with, um, who are, who are so bright, and I thought, man, you could be making six or seven times what you're making. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to know, I appreciate that you've chosen this career to because I like working in the trenches with you um, and you could be doing so many other things. And it, you, you don't always get the appreciation from it. You know, State Department's a big bureaucracy. It's not an easy place to work. Um, you <laughs> know, if it was easy, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have left at 50. Um, and so it's just one of those things that it's, you know, there are challenges. But, yeah, you realize these people are human then. And if you can, in some way, get them one step closer to a solution, like it feels great. Oh man, I can only imagine. Um, thank you so much for sharing. So, I mean, I love that you're so passionate about traveling and seeing the world and things of that nature, because not only were you the diplomat, but you did the work as the Peace Corps before. So, I mean, it, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Like one out of six Americans never leave their own state. 63% yeah. of Americans never leave America. It's like, what are these people yeah. missing out on? It's, I, I always tell people the world is the best classroom, right? It's the greatest classroom in the world. Uh, you know, it, it just got funny to say, but it's like, it's the greatest classroom. And so, and I always tell people like, look, start small, like go on a trip. If, you, if you're not comfortable traveling, go on an organized trip, you know, and then something where there's other people there, there's like people that are, um, you know, setting up the trip. And so they have some, you know, you have somebody to lean on if you get a little bit out of your depth. But then you just kind of stair step up, you know, then you do a trip somewhere that feels safe by yourself. And then you just keep going a little bit deeper into countries that um, maybe are not so easy to travel in. Um, But it's, you know, I just I I feel very fortunate. I've probably been to 
you know, 70 countries around the world. And I've been to places that no one's been to, like yeah. Nauru in the South Pacific and Kiribati. Like, how many people can you know, even to 70 countries? Yeah, like, like <laughs> yeah, Tonga, you know, it's like Yemen, like, you know, places that, you know, not everyone's going to visit, um, you know, Kuwait and Saudi and uh, just Oman. It's just, but these are, you know, it's, it's really, to me, it's just fascinating to see, like, how, how people live their life, you know, what it's like there. And I'm kind of a, a entrepreneur at heart. So I always like to see like what the small businesses are, like what do people do? Um, what's that structure like? How do you guys get loans? It's always like one of my favorite um, <laughs> questions when I talk to people like, how do you guys get financing for the small business? Like, oh, we borrow from these guys. Oh, what's the rates? You know, because you start to kind of get this. All right. Now I start to understand what your life is like. Well, if you could get a bigger loan, like what would you do? And how would you process this? You know, and it's just cool um, to do these things where you get a chance to connect with people. Um, you know, I liked it. You know, I spent some time in Africa and Caribbean and it's, you know, people are people and they all kind of want the same thing. They want to take care of their family. They want to take care of their friends and they want a life for themselves that has some meaning to it. Um, and so I, I just feel like, you know, people are all the same as we're not that different. Um, and so that's one of the things I feel like is a gift from traveling is it's, uh, it breaks down those barriers and you understand, Hey, look, we're not all that, we're not all that different. Yeah, man. As you said, fundamentally, we're all the same. We want food. We want shelter. Yeah. We want to take care of our family. Yeah. you know, I mean, it's really that simple. Fundamentally, yeah. you know, culturally there's tons of yeah. variances, but ultimately people are people. Um, very cool stuff, Nate. Um, so we love to ask this one. Um, I know you've been a yeah. listener for a little while. Um, so you might've heard it. I'm not sure. Um, but if you had a billion dollars and a hundred lifetimes of cash, what would you use with your time? Yeah. Nate? You know, it's funny because I think well, it's a great question. And it's, I think that I would basically hire some really super clever, like business people who understand like turnarounds and growth. And I think I would just put, you know, four or five people together and I would literally just go around visiting small mom and pop businesses, you know, medium sized stuff and just like sit them down and be like, let's walk through what are your 10 biggest problems? And then to go through their financials, go through all their, you know, income statements, to look at their marketing strategy and stuff and be like, okay, our marketing person is going to take a piece of this. Our finance person is going to take a piece, of, you know, your supply chain stuff and just kind of be like, all right, Hey, we're going to tweak this and we're going to, we're going to give you a little bit of an injection of capital here to kind of get to that next level. And then just leave. Like, just move from business to business and like problem solve and then help them be like, oh, hey, have you guys thought about reaching into this market, you know, as an export market? Because I mean, I did some of this as a as a diplomat and it was like, but to actually have the revenue stream and the ability to bring in talent. I mean, I already know some of the people that I work with. I'm like, I know what you're doing for the next 10 years. You're working for me. Like, <laughs> we're going to fly around. We're going to fix businesses. It's going to be awesome, you know, yeah. and it's that's it. I mean, I think that's what I would do because I love like, I love the idea of private property. And I love the idea of this asset class of ownership. I mean, it's in America. People don't realize how unique America is. And I joke about this when I came back from the Peace Corps. Like, I saw how hard it was to start a business in Morocco. So I came back with this, like, immigrant mentality of, like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to hustle. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what it takes, but I'm going to make it. Um, and I also appreciated all that America offers to people. And so I think that's it. Like anything that I could do, like this whole questioning capitalism and this nonsense that's out there right now, like 
No way. Like I would be just the opposite. Let's reaffirm our love of capitalism and let's move forward by helping out some of these businesses to just be, you know, 10% more successful, 50% more successful, whatever. Um, just something to help move the needle for these folks. What a great answer. Like I'm going to travel around and I'm going to help businesses out. Like that's such a cool answer. Like obviously we've had quite a few interesting ones, but that one definitely is one one of the more unique ones. Um, hold on. What did you just say? What was the last statement that you made there, Nate? Um, I don't know. It's traveling <laughs> around helping businesses. Darn. Yeah, after help. Um, I mean, because the thing is, the whole capitalism thing was oh, kind of that's what I closed it, out. Yeah, and, I mean, without yeah. question. Like, without question, I don't yeah. think this could be argued. Like, America is the yeah. best country in the world for entrepreneurs. Um, <laughs> 100%. Like, 100%. I, I I mean, I've lived all over there. the world. Yeah. 100%. And we have a great reputation for it. And I used to leverage on that, too, because people would say, look, you may not always agree with our politics, but there's one thing you can agree with. It doesn't matter if you're from Nigeria or Lebanon or Jamaica. You go to the United States, you can make it. Mm -hmm. And you can do phenomenal. And it's that story is true. And I think that's why our country has worked because people who have hustle get on a plane or on a boat or whatever, and they make it happen and they get to the States and they get a visa to be able to get their foot in the door and start a business. Um, and I love that, man. I love, I love talking, you know, when I was, you know, but whenever I'm around and I'm like talking to somebody, I was having some stuff engraved and I was having this conversation with this Egyptian guy. And he was talking about how he came over and how hard it was to do a business in Egypt. And then he had this like little kiosk in the mall that was doing engraving. And he bought a coffee cart and then he had bought another you know, thing and he was going into a joint venture with another small little coffee shop. And he's like, this was, he's like, what I've done in the last couple of years is a lifetime in Egypt to try and do because of the bribes, mm -hmm. because of the challenges, because of the paperwork, no access to loans, you know, no, you know, the, the rule of law in the United States and our property rights and our access to credit is just unprecedented. And your ability to fail and start over again, and the fact that we embrace failure, like that's, that is such an important aspect of our community. Absolutely, without question. 100% um, agreed, man. So cool, Nate. Like what are your plans for the next 12 to 18 months? New Year's just happened. Everybody has a resolution yeah. and their goals. What are your plans for 2023? Well, I think the kind of, as I'm looking ahead, um, you know, one of the things I'd mentioned, I'm doing this work with Group 9, and I think that that's one of the things I'll start to to expand on over the next year or so, because it's a new aspect of business that I didn't even realize some of the components of it. You know, it's we do a lot with like premises liability. If you have a situation where an act of violence happens inside of your business, and I never realized how much liability is on small businesses who are open to the public. Like the days of saying, oh, it's unforeseeable that someone would come in here with a gun and that we would have an, an active shooter situation. Yeah, years ago, judges would say, yeah, that's unforeseeable, not anymore. And so if you have a, an act of violence in a small business, like it could cost you your business if you have not done a security assessment, if you have not taken the steps to mitigate that risk. And so I do get, I enjoy this aspect of it because there are industrial, you know, like security industrial level standards of what you need to follow. And if you do that, it's beyond what a reasonable person would have done. It's what an industry standard would be. And so kind of educating, you know, businesses about this aspect of risk, which I myself was not, you know, I, I understand risk, man. I've been overseas. I've been in dangerous situations. I understand risk. 
But when you apply it to companies and training and doing risk assessments, to me, I'm, I find it fascinating. And we have a great team that I'm working with law enforcement and former military. And so I'll look at that going forward. Um, we do some expert witness stuff. So it's like when people get sued, we come in as expert witnesses to be able to prove that people did hit those standards. So it's like a, a way to help businesses when they get into uh, an unfortunate situation. So I'll do that. Um, I'm waiting to see where this real estate market goes um, to see if there's going to be some opportunities uh, going forward. I tell people like, if you open up a HELOC now, because if we start to get into a bad situation on the economy, you want to have access to credit because access, you know, that was one of the first things that disappeared in global financial mm -hmm. crisis. You know, people were like, oh, I had a line of credit and the bank took it away. So it's like, open those up. If things look like it's going to be kind of bad, go ahead and draw that money down, yeah. have that on hand, <laughs> because if credit gets tight, you want to have the cash to be able to do that. And like going into that, when I, once I retired, I refined, I'm like, look, interest rates are going up. So I refinanced a couple properties and did some cash out refinancing. And I was at three and a half percent. You know, as soon as they go up to seven, you're like, all right, sweet. Like I'm beating inflation on this on these payments. Um, so I think some of that is just, you know, to answer your question, it's like thinking about what the trends are going to happen over the next 18 months and try and be prepared to act when those opportunities arise. Absolutely. Yeah, the line of credit thing is is one of the biggest things that I've been told to look at. And on top of that, like um, yeah. car repossessions, which are certainly up. Um, I just read an article yesterday that they're going up at a pretty fast rate. So, I mean, something to yeah. be aware of, because these are kind of early indicators. of. It's a canary in a coal mm -hmm. mine, man. Like, yeah, my wife and I were talking about it. I'm like, let's start watching where repossessions start going with cars. And then we'll start to look at, you know, because there's a bunch of people like during COVID that bought a new truck and then they bought a four by four, you know, and they bought, you know, snowmobiles and it's like, and they're still living paycheck to paycheck. And it's like, man, that is a house of cards. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, Nate, yeah. this has been so much fun, man. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. We'll have links to your two books down below as well as your blog Great, Thanks. and all your contact info, man. You are doing so many cool things. This has been so much fun. Um, to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. We're gonna run the 15 strategy. Please figure out what you would do if you had 15 months to live. Tell somebody new, new that can help you stay accountable, take massive action, and before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom too. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.